Thank you. It's nice to be here. Oh, I'm doing wonderful. I uh, work or started working um, trying to help women when I was incarcerated. I became incarcerated in 2015, and when I was released into population, I noticed a need in the prison for help preparing for parole. Um, a lot of people don't realize the public defender gets you through your legal proceedings, but then when you have your first meaningful chance for release, which is parole, there's no help at all. So I got into helping the women because I was surrounded by women who needed help. Probation is something that comes from the judiciary. That is something that the judge imposes at the time of sentencing as part of the court proceeding. Parole is an executive branch function, which is something that comes under the governor's purview, but really it is in Maryland now that the governor has been taken out through the Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services. There is a 10-member parole commission who reviews cases at prescribed times in the law and makes a determination whether somebody is going to receive early release or not based on a list of factors that they are charged with considering, which include things like the circumstances of the crime, remorse and understanding, uh, solid home plan, rehabilitation during incarceration, um, GED and educational achievements, they look at the total case and determine whether that individual is uh, compatible with release in terms of uh, their chances of success and whether they consider them still a risk to public safety and make a determination. I didn't work on my own case, actually. That's kind of like trying to do heart surgery on yourself. I got a typewriter, and I got it really for myself because I was starting to take some classes like Celebrate Recovery for my own personal enrichment. And a young woman came to my door one night and said, can you please help me type this parole packet? And I said, what's a parole packet? And she showed me what she had, which was a very rudimentary thing at that point. But I said, okay, I'm going to try to help you. So I edited it. I tried to do as good of a job for her as possible. And um, she was a domestic violence uh, survivor like I was. So we had a connection. I did my best. She liked my work. She took it, and she got a nine-month delayed release, which is one of the options. You can either get an immediate release, which means you'll be released within about 45 days, or a delayed release for some time in the future, or a rehear, which is like a postponement or a refusal. So she got the delayed release, and she immediately applied for home detention and went home to her children. And it was such a uplifting experience to see that her reconnect with her family that I decided to continue helping others.
Ultimately, I did. I was very, very lucky. I was working on a proposal for additional domestic violence programming. At the time when I arrived at uh, Maryland Correctional Institution for Women, which is the only correctional institution for women in Maryland, there was not much domestic violence programming. So I had put forth a proposal and the warden liked it. The people that she introduced me to to help me were Mary Joel Davis, who had a 40-year history of working with women in incarceration and was developing home plans for people to use at parole. And Lee Goodmark, who is a professor at University of Maryland Law, the Gender Violence Clinic, and did parole packets for survivors of domestic violence. And through the mentoring of those two women, I was able to start developing a parole packet format that I used along with Mary Joel's home plans, and we started having some success. Um, really, that was, I would say, the very beginning of the idea of Prepare. It wasn't, it was still, Mary Joel was working for uh, Second Chance for Women. She was executive director. And I was just doing the best I could with the resources I had in prison. Um, eventually, Elizabeth Finney and Jacqueline Ahn joined us, and that's how we got the initial funding and started really, they started working with us. Uh, Elizabeth has a law background in, uh, in Britain, and Jackie has a criminology background. And all of our different skill sets and views collaborated to kind of do a best practices, which is how PREPARE came into existence. It was wonderful, and it's very interesting because with all of those viewpoints, really we developed something that was better than any one of us could have come up with on our own. The, the whole, in this case, is much greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, I've looked back at some of the 2018 packets that I did, and I look at my new ones now, and they're... I, you can't even recognize that they came from the same thing. The development has been so massive. And we were able to scale the program to where we have advocates going into MCIW now every week to help any woman that wants help with her parole packet. My first year, I wanted to reduce the population by 1%. That was my goal for myself. That meant eight women. I wanted to get eight women out. The population now is just under 500, and our door is open to every one of those women. There are, and... And it varies state by state. In Maryland, uh, nonviolent charges are at 25%. Violent charges are at 50%. And anyone with a life sentence, suspended or not, has a calculation. 15 minus diminution credits, 25 minus diminution credits. It gets very complicated. So every state has its own 
set of guidelines. And I know in some states it's very cut and dry and easy, and in other states it's a really big challenge. So that's something I've looked at but haven't been able to address yet because we're still operating just in Maryland. My favorite part of this job is teaching others because one of the things as our program developed is we developed a set of materials to train people to work on their own packets, to write their own life stories, to write their own remorse statements. We have workshops now to teach families about the parole process. And from starting in 2017 when nobody had any idea and there was so much confusion and lack of knowledge to really build the self-efficacy of the woman and her family, that process is very rewarding because that not only makes her successful at parole, but it makes her successful as she goes out into the community after her release. It bonds her back with her family as they build this this packet together and really go through her plans for when she's going to go home and really go through her life story and get an understanding of what happened, that really, I see that transforming the person, not just getting them out of prison, but making them a more successful person in a holistic way. It is, and that's what we're working on. We have a criminology team that's collecting data now so that we will eventually be able to produce results. But our program operates with the philosophy that a successful reentry starts at intake. So as soon as you walk through those doors of the prison, you should be engaged and given access to the positive activities that are available encouraged to seek rehabilitation, to seek growth and education, so that when you arrive at that 25 or 50 percent of your sentence, you're a good parole candidate because you've been working towards it for years. And then all of those skills translate into the community. So when we present an honest case for parole, for somebody who's put in the hard work over the years and really grown, and they get parole, they take all those skills into the community. We connect them with resources in the community that will help them to grow and to become a even stronger person, to connect them with jobs, to connect them with housing, to encourage them to communicate with their family and reunite them with their children. And then we stay there as a safety net. So if they ever fall out of a service, if they ever lose their grip for a second, they have someone to call. And absolutely, I believe overall, having a peer, having a friend, having someone who knows what you've been through to help you is going to make you successful. It's going to keep you in the community. We have, we have staff. I'm a peer recovery specialist myself. I'm certified. I have, uh, I was actually trained through our, in Maryland, our Department of Labor has a peer recovery program. 
and they trained us at MCIW. One of the women who was trained with me also works uh, for Prepare. She's developing the Don't Just Survive, Thrive portion of our program that gives people activities to really connect them to the community and offers them those additional resources like health and socialization that a lot of people neglect in reentry. Um, so the, we were the first two peers, and we are now getting the rest of our returning citizen staff, which we have five returning citizens that work for us, trained as peers because we have the lived experience, and I want everybody to have the training to most effectively utilize that lived experience. Absolutely. So when I arrived, the only thing that they had was NA Celebrate Recovery. They didn't really have a treatment wing or anything like that. Um, the They had an eight-week program that was run by the, one of the last drug counselors that worked at DPSCS, and it was off and on because he was the regional director, and you had to be about to go home to access it. So the system was really broken. And it was really broken because there just wasn't enough staff. The positions were open, but the hiring wasn't happening. So we couldn't do anything about that. What we did instead was work on building up an NA program. Um, the, a couple of wonderful women were bringing in a workshop and bringing NA to the tiers. Um, when one went home, uh, another woman and I stepped in and started going from pod to pod so that each pod got one NA meeting per week. Um, one of the pods became a D-Wing program, which was a program where they had a meeting every day, and we helped to get facilitators for that. Um, we were very lucky to have a very, very... Um, amenable warden, Miss Chippendale, who now works for Howard County, who was very, um, she understood the need for these services and wanted to make sure they were available to us. And when COVID hit, I was a Celebrate Recovery facilitator, and we continued that through correspondence. And just because of an administration that was really cared about the women and cared about our recovery, we had that available. The peer recovery program started in 2020 that I was in the first group trained of peers. That program now has, um, it see, we were able when I left to see women every weekday. So Monday through Friday, we were able to have an hour meeting with a peer. So that peer support has grown. There have now been three classes of peers trained at MCIW. That that peer program is scaling across the state. There are several men's institutions that have already had trained peers, and it's going to each institution slowly to get that support in Maryland. Um, they also now very recently added a contractor who's doing evaluations for people who are about to go home. But again, successful reentry starts at intake. 
So to me, the future really is that partnership with Department of Labor, DPSCS, and the Behavioral Health Administration, that peer program is critical. That's what brings the services to everyone. Recently, there was a legal change that required Maryland to use Suboc or medication-assisted treatment. It didn't say which kind specifically in local detention centers. And my originally, the bill was drafted to have both local detention centers and prisons, but they took the prisons out, which is unfortunate. The problem is that you really create a black market for Suboxone when you don't have some type of a program and you have this unstructured kind of black market distribution and it causes all kinds of problems and people aren't getting the treatment that they need. Um, it is my hope that in the future change will bring that to the Maryland prisons as well and I would certainly encourage people to stop looking at addiction as a moral issue start looking at it as a medical issue and start looking at medication treatment the way you would look at a diabetic and their insulin or someone with bipolar disorder and their psychiatric medication. You want those people to stay on their medication. You want somebody who has substance use disorder to stay on their medication treatment because that's what's going to make them successful. Uh, my clean date is October 1st of 2017, and so I've been over five years, and it, it's to a point where it is not difficult and I don't have triggers like I used to, but it was very hard, especially being in prison and being in, um, being in some, in an environment where there's so much desolation. I really credit Celebrate Recovery. I credit being a leader in that NA program, really getting engaged in the community and taking on responsibility with keeping me motivated in those first couple years. Because those, those first one, two, three years can be tough. And if anyone is listening to this who's in recovery, I want to encourage you the biggest setback that I see people have is that they will slip once. And they will slip once and throw their hands up and say, I've lost all my clean time. I've lost everything. So I may as well just keep going down that road. The biggest thing that I would want people to know is that every day is a new day. And if you've won for a thousand days and one day you lose, why don't you wake up tomorrow and win for a thousand and one days and one day you've lost? Because you can still keep that record going and a thousand and one to one is still a good record. So just keep moving forward and don't don't engage the shame and the guilt that goes along with substance use disorder. Let that stuff go and just try to live a good life.
Absolutely, it does. Uh, and that is one interesting observation that I had about being in prison is that even though it is a very unnatural and sometimes a very toxic community, it is a small community where people know each other. And in coming home and going through my own reentry, I think one of the things that shocked me is how little connectedness people have with each other. They don't know who lives next door, which would be unimaginable in prison. You know everybody who lives on your tier, but nobody knows who lives on their street. People stand next to each other in the supermarket line and they don't communicate with each other. And that, to me, is something that I feel like the prison community actually does better than we're doing out here right now. We've engaged so much with our devices and so much with media that we forget to engage with the person who's right in front of us. But that humanity is what makes us want to help each other. That humanity is what allows us to care for each other. And that humanity is what allows us to see people who are starting to struggle when there's still time to stick a hand out and pull them back up before things become a disaster. Uh, I live in Baltimore. Mm. Yeah, I live in Baltimore and our city is in crisis right now. Uh, our violence is through the roof. And I, I know that's probably reported in the national media at this point because it's just become so out of control. And one of the things is I'm moving around these communities that have a lot of this violent saturation doing the work that I do and the fact that I lived in one of them before I was incarcerated, I have noticed that disconnect, which I think makes it very easy for people to go out and perpetrate this violence because they're already disconnected. And that would be reach out and connect to your youth before they go to prison, pre-carceration. My work reaches back to the door, but really our work as a society should be making sure they never get to me in the first place. Exactly. Just take those opportunities where you are today. And I told people that on the inside and I continue to tell my clients that 
I did this work for many years on the inside and then I packed up my office basically which was what my room was left everything behind but my paperwork carried that out and I was on the phone with the parole commission at 9 30 in the morning the next morning advocating for one of my clients from the outside and the fence is just a metal object it does not stop you from doing anything except walking across that physically but that does not mean that you can't communicate it doesn't mean that you can't do your work there are many people who have founded nonprofits who have written books who have done great work while they were in prison that's given them work to do when they come home which made my reentry a lot easier because now the work that I've laid, that foundation that I laid while I was incarcerated, I could come and live in that house that I built. And it can be it can be hard, this work. Sometimes you feel like you never get ahead and you feel like you're not making any progress. Um, I was a diesel mechanic and an auto mechanic before I did this. So at the end of the day, I could see the truck or the car that I had fixed. And I had that immediate gratification of saying I did that and I accomplished something. And a lot of times in this kind of work, you can go days and weeks and months and feel like you're not accomplishing anything. Stick through it. And you'll get that win and you'll see that person go home. One of my mentees, after about six months of working on a case, and it was her first case, really difficult case, and I left in the middle of it, and she did it by herself. And they were successful. And she was so frustrated, I think, when she's going through it. But then she's so happy and really, I mean, changed this person's life. And it takes longer to get to the reward, but they're there. So there's distractions, but just remember, play the tape all the way forward, which is something that we say in the 12-step programs, play the tape all the way forward and figure out where do you want to be in a year, in five years? What do you want to do when you go home and start making those small incremental steps towards it today? And you'll get there. So prepare, we are online. It our website is prepare-parole.org. And they can also reach out to me directly. My email is Ann A-N-N-E at prepare-parole.org. And I definitely encourage people to check us out, to reach out. I encourage people in other states who may be doing similar work. Let's look at what each other is doing. Let's get something that can be scaled state by state. Because the one thing that I've noticed is that while the laws are different, the basic information that you put together for a packet and to present somebody is the same. 
So the idea, this idea that we're all building in different silos is the same problem that the government has with the bureaucracy. You have all these little silos. And one of the things I've been very successful at in moving these cases that are jammed up, I connect the silos. So that's what we need to do. If there are people listening to me that are also doing this work, let's connect the silos. Let's figure out what each other is doing, not to do what we're doing and it not for you to come do it in Maryland or me to come do it there, but so that we can perfect what we're doing. And as a team, we can win this for the nation because mass incarceration is a huge problem and it is a problem that affects so many women who are increasing in incarceration at a meteoric rate, and we incarcerate more women than anywhere else in the world. Um, in fact, Liz just noted that we have more women incarcerated in Maryland than, than Great Britain has in the entire country where she came from. Just the women in the United States is more than their entire country, and she figures that would be true in most of Europe. So this is a problem we need to solve, and it's going to take more than one person. It's going to take us all, but I think we can do it. Oh, they are. If parole comes to Maine, I will be more than happy to help you get started and give you everything I have so you can figure out how your law can click into the pieces that are going to be, that aren't going to fit. Um, we recently started scaling our program from the 500 women in Maryland to the 14,500 men. So one of our challenges with that has been communication and scaling, which is a problem that we're taking on and would be very interested in how other people have succeeded. Um, but it is our hope that someday we will uh, we'll be able to provide support to everyone in the state of Maryland. Yes. Yeah. 